0: A foundation of self-knowledge about our divine identity is critical to us, and it appears to be critical to God since he wants us back, for this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. He spends a great deal of time talking about our divine identity through his prophets in the scriptures. In fact, in a number of ways, he communicates his love to, uh, to us of our individual differences. Witness the canon of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. They tell essentially the same story of the divinity of Jesus Christ, but, oh, how different these disciples' individual testimonies are, how uniquely different each is from the other in its emphasis on certain aspects of the Savior's life, how wonderfully suited to different audiences, whether Gentile or Jew, male or female, rich or poor. This is just one small testament that God values us individually. Our identity, individual and unique, universally inspiring, is no accident of nature. Our identity, we have been organized by Him to fulfill His plan, and if we are obedient, to fill the very measure of our creation. There is a rich source of data from a number of disciplines about who we are as humans. From literature, Walt Walt Whitman's Song of Joys begins. Oh, to make a most jubilant song! full of music, full of manhood, womanhood, infancy, full of of common employments, full of grain and trees. Shakespeare's Hamlet recites, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. We find our human majesty reflected in the inspiring works of Michelangelo, our own Minerva Teichert, the symphonies of Aaron Copland, Beethoven, the sonatas of Clara Schumann. An impressive body of research and theory from the sciences informs us in a different way from the arts about the particularities of mortals. Sociologists, psychologists, philosophers, biologists, physicists, and chemists, and others educate us about this enormously complex species, humans. Each discipline's contribution to our understanding of our true identity, though impressive, is still puny, in comparison to God's perspective. And those man-made sources of our identity that are most reliable are those which testify to us of our true natures, our divine selves. This knowledge of selfhood must be guided by the precepts of God, not man. As a psychologist, I am hopelessly narrow in my scope about what to attend to when it comes to the subject of study of individuals. as a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I am broadened by Heavenly Father's expansive vision of us, and I am filled with joy that, about the possibility that I could possess the peace that passeth all understanding. If obedient, I can count myself as one of His disciples, a most amazing premise for identity. We are individually unique. Can you even imagine an intellect so large that it can keep track of the sands of the seashore, or the very hairs of your head, which are all numbered, according to Luke. After all, there are a lot of beaches, and there have been a lot of us humans born since the beginning of earthly time. But the scriptures testify of our uniqueness. And even though I cannot conceptualize of God's capacity to do this, I have faith it is true. God reminds us through the words he spoke to Joseph in the DNC, ye are little children and cannot bear all things yet. Ye must grow in grace and in knowledge of the truth. But fear not, little children, for ye are mine, and I have overcome the world. And you are of them that my Father hath given me, and none of them that my Father hath given me shall be lost, and the Father and I are one. That our identities are indeed eternal and unique means that Godhood really can be our goal. God doesn't want fawning minions, He wants clearly identified individuals who, of their own accord, come to him. My colleague Alan Bergen and I are working on a chapter on this very topic of identity. It's a tall order, but I have been enormously enriched by working alongside him as we subsume what we have learned from years of being psychologists within the expansive and beautiful gospel framework. Alan has spent a great deal of his career forwarding the cause of spirituality in a discipline in the discipline of psychology, promoting religion is healthy rather than harmful. There are many who believe that being religion, religious means you are neurotic. Dr. Bergen has an international presence because of his humble persistence in this matter. In our chapter, we identify the elements of eternal identity and make distinctions between what Alan has labeled the mortal overlay and pre-existing character. I like this characterization as it reminds me of a poster we used to use in Young Women's. You are not um, a human being having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being having a mortal experience. As Allen states, quote, although we inherit or acquire weaknesses through the mortal overlay, our eternal spirits, spirits carry with them into mortality characteristics from the pre-existence. These inclinations may be obvious or subtle, just as talents may be manifest or latent. It is a continuing task in the development of self-knowledge to determine whether a given disposition comes from mortality or premortality, and it is our responsibility to change it if negative and amplify it if positive. If, it is our, if in this quest it is equally important to remember that regardless of past spiritual history, every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning, end quote. We carry the spark of divinity within us. Peter teaches we may become partakers of the divine nature. Alma says, Have you received his image in your countenance? And Jeremiah's words remind us powerfully of how God wishes to be a part of us. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Our identity as his people encourages us to be individually strong, communally expansive. As the sociologist Rodney Stark has stated, after a hiatus of 1,400 years in our time, a new world faith is stirring. The power of just who we were to become as a people apparently stretched out towards the Catholic priest Lutius O.C. Ratius in 1737 in a vision. One of my wonderful laurels introduced me to this quote, which can be found in the Library of Basel, Switzerland, published in his words, Hope of Zion. The old and true gospel and the live gift thereof is lost. False doctrines prevail in all the churches in the face of the land. All we do is exhort the people to be just, fear God, shun evil, and pray. Prayer and purity may cause an angel to visit a deep distressed soul, but I tell you, God will have spoken within a hundred years. He will restore the old church again. I see a little band of people led by a prophet and persecuted, burned out and murdered. But in a valley that lies on the shore of a great lake, they will build a great nation and make a beautiful land, have a temple of great splendor, and also possess the old priesthood and apostles, prophets, teachers, and deacons. End quote. Our group identity is strong because of God's identity. He has stamped himself on our very souls because of Joseph Smith's courage as a young man, because of the love and service of our prophets and leaders, from Brigham Young to Eliza R. Snow to the present day the pure in heart of being drawn to this religion by the thousands. The recent Women's Conference testifies to this. Gladys Knight's testimony in word and song is just one example of one voice among many that is singing praises to our God. Our group identity is more than just an aggregate, though. It is the enormous personal power of the individual identities of you. Brigham Young reminded us that this mortal estate is a school to learn how to be gods and goddesses having increased creating worlds while giving all glory to the Father. I would like to suggest that crucibles are one way in which we move towards eternity, connecting our pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal identities. A crucible is a severe test or trial, one that causes a lasting change or influence. There is clearly some type of critical transformation that occurs. Metallurgy uses the term to refer to this process of extreme heat. Since God is the greatest catalyst of our transformation—perhaps the divine metallurgist of men and women—his plan represents the greatest of crucibles. If we are to become like him, we must go through this sometimes excruciating refiner's fire. How do we survive this fire? First faith—faith in God and in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost, faith that we are known. Paul states, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Truman Manson said in his recent women's conference talk on the sacrament, we are most blessed when we see ourselves as we are seen by him. Because he knows us, he knows the best way to proceed. This, this is why obedience is the next important skill with which to successfully emerge from the potential crush of crucibles. God is easier to obey because he has the proper authority. The philosopher Gadamer states, Authority in this sense, properly understood, has nothing to do with blind obedience to commands, but rather that the authority has superior judgment and insight to oneself. The Prophet Joseph stated, As God has designed our happiness and the happiness of all creatures, he never has, he never will institute an ordinance or give a commandment to his people that is not calculated in its nature to promote the happiness which he has designed and which will not end in the greatest amount of good and glory to those who become the recipients of His laws and ordinances. Faith, obedience, and the next important skill, repentance, for those times when we are unable or unwilling to be obedient. All these skills increase our capacity to love, which, according to Paul, is the final goal. For some of us, obedience is not difficult. For others, it is the bane of our existence— When I feel this attitude inching up inside of me, I am reminded of the (laughs) George—whoops! I'm fussing with the microphones. Uh, When I feel this attitude inching up inside of me, I am reminded of the George MacDonald quote. The first principle of hell is, I am my own. Our general response to authority can truly test us, especially when authorities are fallible, but God is not. For others, while obedience to authority is not troublesome, repentance might be, because it is hard to humble ourselves and admit mistakes. And for others of us, relationships and love might be the struggle. We must remember that one of the clear underlying principles of the notion of crucible is that it is is our own test, and that what is a test for me may not be a test for you. If we consider some of the more common crucibles that many of us encounter, they could be categorized within crucibles of context and crucibles of character. Okay, crucibles of context, influences of culture and environment. There are many definitions for culture, including, but not limited to, molds that grow in laboratories and intellectual and aesthetic pursuits. But (laughs) I am particularly interested in the following definition in Webster's. The sum total of ways of living living built up by a group of human beings and transmitted from one generation to another, behaviors and beliefs characteristic of a certain group. We start out in these cultures as stepping stones of safety. Though cultural groups are comfortable, familiar, they are nevertheless bounded. The kingdom of God is not. How do I become aware of individual cultures and their collective influences? Since God could have organized our mortal estate in any way he wished, we must assume that there is some safety and meaning in the steps of development and that there's a divine purpose in this. We crawl generally before we walk, we babble before we talk, we learn basic concepts from language grammar to mathematical addition to musical scales before we learn the more advanced skills of essay writing, differential equations, and composition. Yet each skill, skill predicated on the last is incomplete still. There's more. While I learn loyalty to my family, I also learn how to leave my family to make my own family. I attempt to manage the elements of being female first by accepting this gender assignment and believe that God, in fact, organized our spirits into male and female from the very beginning. Then I work on the refinements of being a woman, not to celebrate it above the other gender, but potentially to create a perfect union. Each incomplete skill pushes us by its very incompleteness towards perfection. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. In this same vein, I learned to love I learned to let love of country exist as a basis, not for extreme nationalism, but for a found, as a foundation from which to prepare for the kingdom of God. For those of you who are from the American culture, there are wonderful, in fact, inspired facets of being a U.S. citizen. It is, it is interesting that the French statesman de Tocqueville coined the term individualism to denote this unique quality of Americans. But those of us who have the privilege of being U.S. citizens must make sure this individualism does not turn to self-centered provincialism. My graduate student, Diane Nielsen, shared the following statement with me called a summary of the world. If we could at this time shrink the Earth's population to a village of precisely 100 people with all existing human ratios remaining the same, it would look like this. There would be 57 Asians, 21 Europeans, 14 from the Western Hemisphere, North and South, and eight Africans. 70 would be non-white, 30 white. 70 would be non-Christian, 30 Christian. 50% of the entire world wealth would be in the hands of six people. All six would be citizens of the US. 70 would be unable to read. 50 would suffer from malnutrition. 80 would live in substandard housing. Only one would have a college education." Given this compressed perspective, those of you sitting here are part of that one person. The Church started out in the U.S. for divine reasons. This is good, but now we are a worldwide Church. If you thought for one second your behavior was keeping someone from embracing the gospel, you would change it. There are cultural things some of us do as American Mormons that unwittingly have this impact on others. In the clinical psychology graduate program, we have the opportunity to train foreign and domestic LDS and non-LDS students, representing a number of nations, races, and both genders. I asked a number of them who had not come from this culture to comment on it. We can often learn much about ourselves with these kinds of exercises. Uh, Research on majority-minority group behavior corroborates this, suggesting that the minority group knows more about the majority group than it knows about itself. For instance, in corporate America, black or African-American workers can accurately portray patterns of behavior and attitude about their white co-workers that the white or Caucasian workers are somewhat oblivious to. My colleague, Dr. Kate Kirkham, an international consultant to business on the issue of diversity, uh, has spent a career corroborating this notion and has an excellent paradigm to elucidate it. When I asked the graduate student outsiders to comment on good and not so good things about Americans, here's what they said. Good things about North American culture include lightheartedness, sense of justice, and that anything can be accomplished by anyone with will and determination. Less attractive things, wastefulness of natural resources, selfishness, not valuing older people. What about the Mormon culture? Admirable history of perseverance, commitment to its own faith, industriousness, not-so-good things, apparent mistrust of human nature, and exclusiveness. As insiders, we might consider how it is that we possibly contribute to these perceptions. Cultural behavior often clouds doctrinal truths and keeps others from coming to Christ. The clinical students attempt to learn about their own cultures by keeping journals. In effect, this is a way of taking a fish out of water. My students tell me the ways they have changed as they engage in journal keeping and other exercises that make them aware of their isms, sexism, racism, even materialism. Normally, we move along the continuum of identity formation from identification to imitation to empathy. But we are often halted at the level of identification because something about the other group annoys, frightens, or even disgusts us. We are unwilling to consider that the other gender, another race, a different ethnicity, someone in simply another circumstance might feel because it seems so out of our experience or comfort zone. This stops us from knowing them and eventually from knowing all of the parts of ourselves. And it keeps us from being potent with them. For instance, our clinical psychology students work with male sex offenders at the prison. It takes them a long time to learn how to be effective therapists not simply because the culture of the prison is sometimes built on punishment rather than rehabilitation, but also because the students are understandably appalled at the nature of these crimes. Notice, pardon me, but after a while, they begin to see what motivated some of these people to do the things they did. Notice, I'm not saying they agree with the behavior. They begin to understand it, and part of this understanding is based upon accepting the natural man instincts inside themselves, that all of us, how's the potential for inappropriate aggression and sexual expression. This acceptance often comes by way of dreams that inform them about what it must be like to be these incarcerated men. While shocked at first, they learn to use this knowledge to make a difference with these inmates, so they are less likely to reoffend. If the Lord himself sank below all things to atone for us, if he understood the needs of all of us, including all manner of evil and every failing we would ever be capable of, might we too need to consider that such empathy is required of all of us? God has told us that we must all overcome the natural man. Perhaps along with appetites and lusts, this also includes forms of subtle hatred, the smugness of superiority. These are uncomfortable to notice. Here is an excerpt from one white Mormon student's journal when she volunteered in Zimbabwe, which I quote with her permission. Most of all, I fear my own racist attitude. The test here is for whites not to abuse their perceived authority. I say perceived because God is the true authority. We must have righteous treatment of all people, end quote. We all possess at some level forms of discrimination towards the other gender, other races, even other IQ categories. You in this audience are in the high end of the normal curve when it comes to IQ. This may embarrass you, it may make you feel puffed up, or it just may be. Rather than pretend it isn't so because of discomfort, we need to let it be what it is and use it for good. Noticing many of these cultural influences is so uncomfortable to some of us. We sometimes project unwanted parts of ourselves onto other groups who then bear the burden of these traits for us. Paul states, Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. And Luke writes, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Joseph Smith had a great way of uh, of doing this difficult work. The story goes, a woman went to the prophet upset about some things another member of the church had said to her. The prophet told her that if what the man had said was untrue, she should ignore the matter because truth would survive, but untruths would not. The woman, uh, let's see. The woman felt the comments were untrue, but she was not satisfied with ignoring the matter. Does this sound familiar to any of you? The prophet then told his way of handling such comments. When an enemy had told the scandalous story about him, which had often been done, before he rendered judgment, he paused and let his mind run back to the time and place and setting of the story to see if he had not by some unguarded word or act laid the brick on which the story was built. If he found that he had done so, he said that in his heart he then forgave his enemy and felt thankful he had, he had received warning of a weakness that he had not known he possessed. The prophet told the sister she should think carefully about whether she had unconsciously given the man any reason to say the things he did. After much thought, she decided she had, and she thanked the prophet and left. As a culture, we want to be able to reduce those traits that turn people away from us. Perhaps we could use the prophet Joseph's model so that, as Neil Maxwell suggests, we don't become a provincial people isolated geographically and intellectually. We want the hope that we have to shine so brightly that others cannot help but be drawn to it. We can be comforted to know, however, that the truth will prevail, no matter if, as individuals, we act as clear corridors to the truth or confusing mazes. The next set of crucibles are crucibles of character that influence us from within. They are stated in terms of dilemmas or essential tensions and sometimes have to be tolerated while we search for resolution or transcendence. The first is the crucible to know thyself versus know, O N-O, thyself. On the one hand, We are admonished to know ourselves, to sharpen our countenances upon each other, to become so sure of our inner attitudes and outward behaviors that we are knowable and known. Possessing a sure identity, though, does not mean vain selfishness. But what does it mean? We have been told that to lose ourselves is to find ourselves. We know from Scripture it was important that the prodigal son came to himself. When Moses saw God's universe, he realized man was pretty small, which thing I never had supposed, says Moses. These scriptures suggest that it is wise to know ourselves but to avoid focusing all energy in this pursuit by also focusing on others. The the second crucible is the pursuit of perfection versus competition. Competition is a tough concept to consider, especially in college. Let's start with a good lesson from the Doctrine and Covenants, 7, verse 4. The Lord responds to a request from Joseph and Oliver to confirm if the disciple John tarried in the flesh. In the Lord's inimitable way, He gives an entirely different lesson to them by revealing the interaction that took place between the two disciples. He tells them He will grant them the wish of their heart. Peter asks to come speedily to Christ. John asks to stay in mortality and bring souls unto Christ. Peter apparently worries he has asked for the wrong thing. And Christ says to him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? The message is clear—this is not a time to compete. There are even more dire consequences regarding certain sins that are often based on competition. Cain's intense jealousy of and competition with Abel is just one such example. What if we had a personality disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that mental health professionals use in diagnosis called the remains of Cain in me—a description of debilitating competitiveness? Competition is part and parcel of being in college, but perhaps we would all be better off if we spent more energy on cooperation and an eye single to the glory of God, or as Kierkegaard writes, the purity of heart is to will one thing. A particular kind of competitiveness or ill-fated search for distorted form of perfection involves eating disorders. It is a current critical health crisis for American uh, college students, women in particular, despite a vigorous campaign at education. My colleague, Dr. Spangler, is an expert in this area. Early Celtics used to throw humans into peat bogs to appease their gods. These were apparently human sacrifices made at times of crisis, whether famine, war, or weather. We know this because the recently discovered mummified remains were unintentionally preserved by the peat. Perhaps eating disorders are our culture's sacrifice— At the altars of the vain gods of beauty and the distorted notions of control we are tossing far too many women and some young men into this bog we are not facing this crisis as a society these are really problems of identity we must strive not to compete but to be complete which is the greek translation of perfect the next crucible the real self versus the true self The real self is a popular term in the last several decades in psychology based on the body of literature that supports an authentic self. Authenticity is a good thing, but the literature of authenticity is still embedded in the language of mortality. My authentic here-and-now emotions are to run screaming from this room. (laughs) (laughs) I am really nervous, but I have an overriding message coming somewhere from my prefrontal cortex to hang in there. I said I'd do this. My parents taught me to be responsible. My teachers taught me to take risks. I tolerate the tension of these because I know that obligation is more important than mere authenticity. The psychologist William James wrote to his wife in 1878, I have often thought that the best way to define a man's character would be to seek out the particular mental or moral attitude in which, when it came upon him, he felt himself most deeply and intensely active and alive. At such moments, there is a voice inside which speaks and says, this is the real me." God wants us to be alive in Him. If we do not choose Him first, whatever we have chosen will keep us from Him. Struggling with being real and authentic requires a willingness to be true to God first, In order to come to our most true identity as sons and daughters of heavenly parents. The next crucible is the ordinary versus the extraordinary. Our context often alters our perception of what is normal or average. For instance, in this audience, how many of you are returned missionaries? Raise your hands. My. Given this number, those of you who are or will be missionaries might think, well, this is pretty ordinary that I'm going on a mission or have been on a mission. But if we set you down in almost any other culture, that so many of you go to the far ends of the earth is really quite extraordinary. Fifteen sets of parents from my homeward alone have sent or are about to send their children on missions. My son is one of them. I'm so grateful I know this Church is true. It would be so difficult for me to let him go. If just because of the numbers we incorrectly surmised that what we do is always ordinary, we would be making a mistake. Sister Sherry Dew has stated, Satan wants us to feel insignificant, that no matter how hard we try, we'll never make much of a difference. Oh sure, our work is necessary, but not very important. This is a big fat lie. It is a diversion designed to keep us so focused on any perceived injustices that we completely overlook the opportunities and privileges that are ours, and we underestimate the vital nature of our contribution, and we never come to understand the power we have to change lives. Keeping in mind our potential divinity while not becoming over-entitled is a tough balancing act, the willingness to be at times ordinary and extraordinary. This teaches us lessons of humility and of being leaders and followers. One challenge for you individually wonderful students in this huge institution called the University I used to emerge as unique despite the message institutions can unwittingly give you that you are just a number. Standing in line, changing a class, cashing a check, buying a sandwich, we often feel like that number. But tolerate the essential tension of this extraordinary, ordinary dilemma. And remember, you are known by the Father. Getting through these various character crucibles further refines our identity Identity formation is initially enhanced by an outer organization such as a cultural group, certain clear physical characteristics, etc. But for a deeper identity to emerge, an inner integration must take precedence eventually so that regardless of our exterior, our cultural group, our circumstance, our character, our identity comes through. Lorenzo Snow stated, we are the offspring of God, born with the same faculties and powers he possesses, capable of enlargement through the experience we are now passing through in our second estate. Successfully emerging from these crucibles will allow us to be more than mere labels, since, as Eldridge reminds us, labeling someone as anything other than a disciple of Christ can be damaging. During the last days, the adversary has been trying to convince people that all kinds of trials and weaknesses are permanent. I am anorexic. I am alcoholic. I am weak. I am gay. And all the while stands before us and within us the great I am, calling us to something beyond our mortal condition. He reminds us that we were with him long before we were with the world. Many times, these two crucibles of context and character collide in the dark night of the soul. In the scriptures, we have accounts of those who were prepared when they came to their crucible. The most compelling, of course, is Christ at Gethsemane. The stories of Moroni, Abish, Anna, Daniel, Esther, Job, these also help us. Sometimes we can become aware of our own vulnerabilities, especially if we will listen to our colleagues and friends. If we foster competition, greed, lust, or hate, our souls may not be able to rise to the challenge of crucible. Along with the dark night of the human soul, there have been many dark nights of society's soul. When individual hearts have failed them and they have bent to the will of a group, in these troubled times, Who do we follow so that we can have courage? Jesus Christ is the true example of perfect identity. I am stunned by the personhood of Jesus Christ, the distinctness of Him, regardless of His context or culture. His gender, He was male. His religion, He was Jew. His region of origin, He was Galilean, or any of His other particularities, His height, His color, His age. He reached beyond all of these to all of us. He is astonishing. He must have appeared so to the woman in Luke 7:32, who was so overcome by gratitude to Christ that she overcame custom to show him. She knew the difference between provincialism or narrow-minded culturalism and the glory of God's truth that evokes such gratitude in us. Jesus entices us To acts of theotropism, bending our individual wills towards the light. As the Christian apologist C.S. Lewis states, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one, to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with people, all friendship, all love, all play, all politic. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, or exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors." End quote. Here we are at BYU, gathered in his name, an incredible kaleidoscope of humans, where faith, obedience, repentance, and love allow us to join in shared discipleship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Crucibles help create these opportunities. Recall the words that Charlotte sang at the beginning of the devotional. Are there anybody here like Mary, a weeping; Peter, a sinking; sailors, a trembling? I submit to you that we have all wept, sunk, and trembled either under the weight of our own sins, from the unwitting problems brought on by misfortune, from inherited struggles that, through no fault of our own, have wrought havoc in our lives, such as bipolar disorder, or from the exercise of someone else's agency against our innocence that has deeply wounded us, such as incest. The answer to all of these, as it states in the song, is Call to my Jesus, and he'll draw nigh. I know this to be true. And I say it in his holy name. Amen. Amen.